we would all uh, be glad uh, to receive your word, would receive it with a ready mind, uh, would search the scriptures, and Lord, that all of us would live in submission to your word. I pray that you would reign in our hearts and lives, that you would be king over us. I pray that you'd help me, that my preaching would aim to that end as well, to restore your throne and dominion in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that we as a people would be glad, again, glad to hear the word of God proclaimed and would delight in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I pointed out to you this morning that um, just as with all the rest of Scripture, what we see here in Matthew 2 is not an account of what Herod did. It's not an account of what the chief priests and scribes did. It is not an account of what the wise men did. It's not an account of what Joseph and Mary did. What we see here is an account of what God did. What God was doing in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. Understanding, of course, as Matthew has made clear in Matthew chapter 1, that Jesus' entry into the world was not merely the entry, the entrance of another individual person. Not just the entrance of a new baby, a newborn baby. But in fact, that the birth of Jesus Christ marked the event in which God took upon himself human flesh and was made like us. And it is very telling to us, it is very revealing to us about this God, that when he entered our world, he did not enter in a terrifying form. There's nothing more delightful, nothing more likely to strike uh, a sense of like the, the times when you're likely to hear a man say, aw, is when he's looking at a newborn baby. Nothing fills us with more delight, with more joy, than such an event. <clears throat> and that's the way God entered our world. Because he was sending a message to the world. I am not your adversary. I am not your enemy. But I've come to redeem you. It is our own fault that we reject God's advances. That we reject God's overtures of peace and reconciliation. And in the last day, when we stand before this righteous judge, he will have acquitted himself very well for our sakes. And we will have no excuse before God. Understand that. And so what God has done is to enter our world in the person of this infant, Jesus Christ, become one of us, in order to bear all the hatred and all the scorn and all the spite of wicked sinners and along with that all the wrath of God against sin for our sake in our place 
so that God's wrath can be diverted from us and laid on Jesus Christ so that sin can be paid for, so that God's righteous demands for justice can be satisfied, so that you and I can be pardoned and forgiven and reconciled to God and be at peace with Him. That is the message of Christmas. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The angels announced it. We see it displayed in every detail of the story of the birth of Christ. It's a beautiful thing, a glorious thing. So as we looked at Matthew 2 this morning, we pointed out to you that this is what God is doing. So here's what God did, part of the story of the birth of Christ that God wants us to know about. He designed a star. It was a special star. I'm going to get into the star here in a little bit. But it was something unique, never seen before or since in the world. God used that star guy, Wiseman, from the east, most likely uh, from the region of modern-day Iraq, to guide those wise men from their Persian dignitaries, representatives of a kingly court, <clears throat> guide them first to Jerusalem, and then cause the star to disappear so that the wise men will ask a startling question throughout Jerusalem. This was the way God chose. See, when on the night Christ was born, God chose to reveal that birth to shepherds. That is another message for another time. But shepherds would be like modern day, a modern-day construction crew, the way our culture might look at. They're, they're rough, um, they're a little vulgar, and God chose to reveal the birth of Christ to them, and to reveal it in a way that would be meaningful to them, angels. And these rough and tough guys accustomed to the outdoors lived outdoors year-round, day and night, tending the sheep. These guys are terrified by the sight of those angels. That's the way God heralded this birth on the night Christ was born and there in Bethlehem. <clears throat> but for Jerusalem, God chose another extraordinary way of making the news known. He brought these wise men from a far country, whether Iraq or somewhere else is irrelevant. He brought them to Jerusalem and then the star disappeared. And then they, these magi, astrologers, men who were expert at reading the signs in the stars, they come in 
to Jerusalem, and they ask this question. Now, maybe I should back up a little bit and give a little context as far as culture goes in Israel. The city gates, uh, if you were a visitor to a city, you know, they didn't have an open borders policy. There was someone, a judge, who sat at the city gate, and when you had business in that city, you declared your business when you came into the city. And that business was uh, examined and evaluated by the judge, and he would decide whether or not you were allowed into the city or not. And so here come these foreign dignitaries, and they announce their business. Where is the born king of Israel? Right? And everybody knows because it's this unspoken animosity towards Herod that he is the usurper king of Israel. So when they ask, where is the born king? It is a direct affront to Herod the Great. Herod the Great, not Herod the Small, not Herod the Little, not Herod the Insignificant, not Herod the Meek and Mild, all right? Herod was notoriously cruel. Caesar Augustus once said that I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. And he said it with good reason, because when Herod thought there might be a threat against himself as king by two of his sons, he had those sons executed and their mother as well. He was not playing games. So here's this direct affront to Herod the Great. Where is the born king of Israel? And the message gets to where it's supposed to get to. Herod hears it, and he is troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And as it has been pointed out, all of Jerusalem was troubled for a different reason than Herod was troubled. They knew how ruthless he could be. And of course, we see that ruthlessness at the end of Matthew chapter 2, when Herod orders the slaughter of all the male sons of Bethlehem, two and under. He was not playing games. So they come in, and the word is spread through this. Now, now think about this. God is making sure that the birth of his son is not a secret. He is making sure that the world knows that my son has entered the world. This is what the prophets have been pointing to for hundreds of years, and now it has come, and God makes it known. Ready or not, the Messiah has come. And so I pointed out to you this morning that Matthew, in this part of the story, is showing you the threat of the birth of Jesus Christ. He shows you that the birth of Christ was a threat to the world. It's amazing that Herod the Great was threatened by this newborn baby. Helpless little baby. He feels 
the intensity of the threat. You might think, oh, come on, Aaron, you're paranoid. That baby's no threat to you. You would be wrong. Absolutely, Jesus was a threat to Herod and is a threat to every would-be tyrant on the face of this earth in the history of mankind. <clears throat> Jesus, in fact, came to bring an end to tyranny and oppression in our world. He is a threat, absolutely. <clears throat> Matthew presents the threat of Jesus by setting before us two sets of contrasts. The first set of contrasts are those self-seeking, self-serving rulers and authorities. In Israel, those two, there were two sets of these self-seeking tyrants. The first of those, of course, was Herod the Great, who built his kingdom on the backs of the people, who devoured the people in order to make himself great. It would be, it would blow your mind. I think Herod had something like a dozen palaces spread throughout the land of Israel, including Caesarea, Caesarea by the sea, which is at, at, the ruins of it today. I'm, I'm telling you, I could pitch a tent and live there. It's so beautiful and so peaceful and so wonderful. And he built swimming pools and he built a hippodrome and he built all sorts of amazing things for his own entertainment and amusement there. And then his palace at um, Masada, I talked about this morning, way up in the sky, elevated, beautiful, and the water systems that they had, and the saunas that they had, and all of these things. And when you think of the abject poverty that many people in Israel lived in at that time, and the way that Herod used his power to gain more and more prestige and more and more opulence for himself. It was all about Herod. And so, yes, Jesus was absolutely a threat to Herod to overthrow. To, in fact, Jesus came in, and I believe that Luke mentions Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on the face of the earth, and Matthew mentions Herod the Great, the most powerful man in Israel, and I think it's intentional to tell us that Jesus came to be a not just a king, but a new kind of king. Jesus didn't just come to show us the way to be a king, he showed, came to show us a new way of being a king, a way that men had never, never been able to master. And even today, we go into our elections and we think, you know, so-and-so, he's all about himself. We're going to put this guy in office, and then lo and behold, what does he do when he gets the power, right? He uses it all for himself. That's what men do when they rule. And Jesus Christ came to show the world a new way of being king, 
by sacrificing himself for his people. So that's the first contrast. The second contrast I pointed out is a little more subtle, but still is there, present. And that is because of the way the chief priests and scribes justified their or proved, demonstrated their claim that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They quoted Micah 5.2, but they didn't quote it perfectly. In fact, they didn't say that they were quoting Micah. They said that they were quoting the prophet. And their, their quotation actually merges together. Micah 5.2 with 2 Samuel 5 and verse 2. combines the two because the, the chief priests and scribes, they were wrong about a lot of things. But they were not wrong in their understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be. That the Messiah would be um, the, the fulfillment of God's promise, God's covenant with David, that uh, a member of David's family would reign forever on the throne, and that that member of David's family would be the Messiah. So, so the two are combined when the men of Hebron approach David to ask him to reign as their king. They approach him because they said, you are the one who has led us forth, who has ruled over us. You have been our leader, and we want you to be our king. And so when, when the chief priests and scribes pointed to the prophecy about Bethlehem, they said, and thou Bethlehem in the land of Judah art not the least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come a governor that shall rule my people Israel. The word rule there can also mean feed. In fact, uh, the margin of King James uh, offers that as an alternative uh, translation. Feed my people. So a ruler that feeds, that would be a shepherd. And I pointed out to you this morning that the chief priests and scribes themselves, according to Jesus, were those who devoured widows' houses. Men who used their knowledge to serve themselves instead of leading the people. Later on, the people would recognize the difference between the scribes and Jesus, because Jesus taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They recognized the way the scribes were exalting themselves and promoting themselves and lifting themselves up. So Jesus shows that he is not a self-serving shepherd, but he is in fact the good shepherd. And in John chapter 10, Jesus said that you can tell the good shepherd because he's the one who gives his life for the sheep. So we have these two contrasts, two kinds of tyranny. One is a, a, a temporal, a, a civic tyranny, a, a government tyranny, and the other is a religious tyranny. 
And Jesus came to overthrow both of those. And then the second set of contrasts, which I skimmed through this morning, <clears throat> but I want to deal with a little more thoroughly tonight, is a contrast of responses. <coughs> Pardon me. We have, first of all, in this contrast of responses, the response of Herod versus the response of the Magi. We have Herod's hostility and the wise men's adoration. Herod must have gotten the message from the chief priests himself. They must, so, so the way I envision this, uh, the wise men coming to town asking their infamous question, word reaches Herod that there are men coming into our city, uh, men of means, men of substance, Right? This wouldn't be like a few beggars coming in and asking this kind of question to try to get attention. But these are intelligent philosophers from kingly courts, dignitaries, men of substance, coming into Jerusalem, asking a significant question. And Herod hears about it, and he calls all the chief priests and scribes. Again, I believe the representatives the uh, Sanhedrin, the, the representative body. And he calls them, and I don't think he brings them all together, because I think, first of all, he knows what he's dealing with here. And so he keeps them separate, he gets the answer from the chief priests and scribes, and then he takes the answer to the Magi, and he carefully shapes and crafts. Now this is a very clever man. This is a man, Herod the Great, really talked himself into the throne of Israel. Uh, he, didn't, he didn't have any right to it whatsoever. He persuaded Caesar Augustus to make him the king. I mentioned this morning, he was the only king in the Roman Empire. The only one allowed uh, to, be, to have that title. All right, so this is a man um, who knows a thing or two about, shall we say, diplomacy. You know, uh, the art of diplomacy is the art of uh, me letting you have my way. Uh, <clears throat> this is what Herod is good at, all right? And he goes to the wise men and he gives them the verdict from the chief priests and scribes, tells them that it's Bethlehem, all right? And he tells them in a very convincing fashion his own excitement and delight in learning this news. And please, when you found him, come tell me. Send me word where he is, because I want to worship him too. And the wise men believe him. That's what kind of convincing liar they believe him. They think that that's what he wants to do. So Herod presents himself as a would-be worshiper of the born king of Israel. Just like you wise men. I don't want to do the same. But of course we know that Herod intended not to make sacrifices to the child, but to make the child the sacrifice. When they left the palace, 
The star reappeared. Now see what God was doing? This is not an accident. It's not like, you know, clouds came in and covered and it just was coincidental. Oh no, this is all intentional. All right, the star reappears, just disappeared long enough to bring to the attention of Herod, of the chief priests and scribes, and of all Jerusalem, that there is now a born king in Israel once again. And now the star reappears. <clears throat> so God gave the wise men a star to guide them, and that star brought them to Jerusalem. He hid the star so that they would ask their question, and then he gave them the star to guide them once again. Now, <clears throat> I have to pause for a moment and say that when I read commentaries, which I, I read uh, a lot, I try to get a lot of different ideas on these passages uh, because I don't want to just be my own interpreter on these things and I want to see the way people have typically understood this, but it just shocks me, honestly, the naturalistic way people interpret the star of Bethlehem. I, I don't understand it. People who otherwise conservative believers who, who believe the word of God and take God's word at face value uh, and believe it absolutely on the star just go all over the place on that and so <clears throat> every kind of natural explanation that you can imagine all right some have suggested in fact one of the strong suggestions that's been out there historically was that this star was an alignment of two planets jupiter and saturn um, and in fact, uh, astrologers will tell you that there was such an alignment of those stars that created a, quite a light in the heaven uh, around somewhere in the 12 to 7 BC era, uh, somewhere in there, all right? And so some have thought that that was the star, this alignment, these two planets together. Others have suggested that it was a supernova. A supernova is a, a little less light star um, that suddenly explodes and uh, creates a big gas um, explosion in the sky that lasts for anywhere from four to 12 days uh, with that. And so it's kind of like a flare up in the sky. Others <clears throat> have suggested Haley's Comet. It was Haley's Comet. I was thinking how fast those camels would have to be to follow Haley's Comet to Jerusalem from Iraq. I'm thinking, I don't know. I don't think they had jet propulsion at that time, but, and I'm pretty sure jet power can't keep up with the comet, but, you know, what do I know? I, I just have to say, I mean, I'm not an astrologer, all right? I'm just an observer of the skies. Can any of you tell me what stars are directly over Utah? The ones, the, the precise stars that are above Utah. Can you tell me? Because I'm not sure. In my estimation, they all are 
and none of them are, right? Certainly if I was following a star, which I know that sailors have followed stars, but I don't know of any that have been able to determine exactly what the star was standing over. And yet that's the way this is looked at here. When the star reappeared, some have insisted that it was there symbolically, but that it wasn't much of a help. And I'm gonna to quote to you from one of the more uh, well-known and, and conservative commentaries that I enjoy reading, and that is Expositor's Commentary, which says this, Matthew does not say that the rising star the Magi had seen led them to Jerusalem. They went first to the capital city because they thought it the natural place for the king of the Jews to be born. But now the star reappeared ahead of them, verse 9, as they made their way to Bethlehem, taking this as confirming their purposes. You hear that? So in other words, the reappearance of the star was just confirmation that, oh yeah, we're still supposed to be seeking Jesus. But they only know to go to Bethlehem because the chief priests and the scribes told them to go. Taking this as confirming their purposes, the Magi were overjoyed, verse 10. The Greek text does not imply that the star pointed out the house where Jesus was. It may simply have hovered over Bethlehem as the Magi approached it. Now, again, i got to ask the question. How would you know? How would you know that it was hovering over Bethlehem? How would you know that? Uh, it, it, again, it doesn't make sense to me to say this was anything less than a supernatural event, a, a miracle that God did. But expositors said they would then have found the exact house through discreet inquiry. I, I say theologians once in a while should come out of their rooms leave their libraries and go enjoy a breath of fresh air for a little while, maybe the night sky, look up there and notice all those twinkling objects in the sky. Those are what we call stars, all right? And understand that I would no sooner know if a star was hovering over Ogden or Salt Lake City than what they would know if one hovered over Bethlehem. So this is from what I can see, the best explanation. First of all, the Greek makes it abundantly clear that the star led them to the place, the house where Jesus was. That means a star entered our atmosphere to guide the shepherds. Now, do I think that it was a literal star? Well, I did a little research i.e. I googled it, all right? And when I googled it, I discovered that the smallest stars are still bigger than our moon. I was curious, so I just googled, are, st are there any stars the size of our moon? I just asked that question. 
Google knows everything. <laughs> and so I found that there's a small star that is just a little bit bigger than our moon. And I was thinking about, well, have you ever seen, you know, around October, September, October, when the moon gets really, they call it the harvest moon. And it'll come up early, and it'll be super bright in the sky, and how big that thing is. And you realize that it's still, you know, a long way away from Earth. Imagine if it entered our atmosphere. It would be really hard if, if the moon entered our atmosphere. It would be very hard to say that it's hovering over Ogden. I mean, it would kind of hover over the whole Western Hemisphere, right? You could not pinpoint a place where it is hovering. Here. <clears throat> so we can say for sure that this star was not the body of a star, the shell of a star, the housing of a star. It was not that. It's been pointed out that most definitions of a star tell us what a star is made of, exploding gas. But that doesn't tell us what a star is. It tells us what it's made of, but not what it is. We do an exercise um, in my logic class. Uh, we ask the students, we teach them how to define terms, and then we ask them to tell us <clears throat> uh, what is the substance of life? What constitutes life or makes a thing to be living. It's a good exercise. And we talk about it usually for a day or two, sometimes three, long enough for them to learn that it's really hard to pinpoint exactly what constitutes or what the substance of life really is. Even so, it would be very difficult for us to say what is the substance of a star. I don't know that we actually know what a star is. Someone suggested that what entered our atmosphere and guided the wise men and stood over the place where the child was was nothing less than the Shekinah glory, the glory of God himself. I have to say, I like that explanation. And here's why I like it. Because the Bible tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God. What the heavens are telling you when the stars are twinkling and the moon is shining bright and in the daytime, when the sun fills our atmosphere with light, what the heavens are telling you is that the Creator God is a glorious God, unspeakably glorious. They're telling you that. And so, what a star really, I think we could be safe to say that the substance of a star, what a star is, is really a small, small taste of the glory of Almighty God.
and that it was that glory that shone bright in the sky and that guided those wise men to Jerusalem and then to the house in Bethlehem where the young child was. And we need to understand that God guided those wise men to the house so that Gentile kings would bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. The second contrast is a contrast of indifferent people versus the worshiping wise men. The religious authorities had a grasp of the facts, but no motivation to do anything about it. It tells you how woefully inadequate knowledge and facts and information really is. Because we've never had more information available to us than we do today, and we have never been more unmotivated than what we are today. And that's the truth that we see here in this story as well. Men who had a firm grasp of the truth, but had zero motivation. Understand that from Jerusalem to Bethlehem was about five miles journey. Down into a valley, down from Jerusalem that sits on a mountain, down into a valley, around a mountain, and up a steep terrain into Bethlehem. That's all they had to do. And they could have gone and found them themselves. These are men who had spent their lifetime studying about the Messiah, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. You almost get the impression that they thought the Messiah should come to them. They were not going to go to him. And that's the kind of reality that we see in our world today, a world that is apathetic towards God, that will not come to him, that would not come to him. Oh, I've heard so many people say, well, if God would come and visit me and tell me, it's not true. It's not true. Abraham said to the rich man when he died, and found himself, woke up in hell, lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and prayed that Abraham would send Lazarus to warn his brothers. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't hear them, then they won't believe, though one comes back from the dead. That's the reality that we face today. They knew that a king was born in Israel. They came to worship him. The, the wise men did, right? So, so here's the comparison. You have men who know where the Messiah would be born, but are motivated to go see for themselves whether in fact it was the Messiah. And then you have men who don't know where he'll be born, but they know that a king is born in Israel, and they go to see him and to worship him. They don't know where to go, but when they find it, they go there. Let this be a lesson to you. 
No man is saved because he knows the truth. The religious authorities show us what studied indifference looks like, what educated apathy looks like. The wise men show us what faith looks like, and those who seek him will find him. Now the wise men, when they arrived, they did the only appropriate thing when coming to Jesus. They fell down before him and they worshiped him. I don't think, by the way, that this is evidence of salvation. I think that this is a temporal thing. These men recognize that this is their superior and they come to pay him honor and homage. It was custom to do so. Still, I love it that the Bible uses that word worship repeatedly in this passage because that is the one thing we owe to Jesus Christ is worship. We owe him worship. As part of their worship, they gave Jesus gifts. By the way, <clears throat> giving is an act of worship. They open their treasures, not tight-fisted. <clears throat> no, no Scrooge here, no Grinch. They opened their treasures and they presented to him kingly gifts. The wealth of the nations were given to the Messiah, and this is as the prophets foretold. Psalm 72, verse 10, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. This is what God promised, and this is what happened. Isaiah 60 and verse 6, the multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah. All they from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of the Lord. <clears throat> the world responds to the Messiah the way Herod responds. These are the signs that men hold up as they parade their sin and their debauchery. They hold up signs that say, if Jesus returns, kill him again. That's the spirit of Herod in our world. <clears throat> kill Jesus. Make sure you respond to Jesus the way the Messiah the, the, the wise men respond to the Messiah and not like the religious authorities. Don't sit back in studied, sophisticated indifference, but come to him, fall at his feet, open your treasures, and pour out to the Lord. The birth of Jesus Christ is a threat to tyrants, and it is a blessing 